Hey, this is Al Levin of The Depression Files. I wanted to start out this episode with a shout-out and a huge thank you to Whitney Smith McIntosh for becoming a Depression Files patron. Thank you so much, Whitney. Now listen and find out how you, too, can become a patron and support the show. Hello, this is Al Levin, the creator and host of The Depression Files podcast. For two and a half years, I've been creating and publishing this show every other Sunday. Of course, there is a cost to producing a podcast, from paying the podcast hosting site, to the equipment, to a significant amount of my own personal time. Because of this, I've decided to create a Patreon page, and hope that you'll consider contributing so that I can continue the important work of allowing men to share their stories. Please check it out at patreon.com slash thedepressionfiles. That's patreon, P-A-T-R-E-O-N, dot com slash the depression files thank you for considering to support me in this way and now to the show and i moved over to the other uh, another hotel ballroom and i thought i was going to meet god there even at the psychiatric hospital i thought the psychiatric hospital was a spaceship taking me to heaven Welcome to The Depression Files, where you'll hear interviews of men who have struggled with depression. We talk about everything related to mental health, from depression and other mental illnesses, to medication, to suicide awareness and prevention, to our current mental health system, and of course, to the stigma that surrounds mental illnesses. I believe that sharing stories is one of the best ways to chip away at the stigma. I also believe that sharing stories helps to educate those who may know little about mental illnesses while giving hope to those who may be suffering. I'm your host, Al Levin, and I want to thank you for tuning in. Let's get started. Hello and welcome to The Depression Files. This is Al Levin, your host. I'm really excited today on the line we have Sean Blackwell. Sean, uh, since 2007, has been researching and teaching about the spiritual dimension and healing potential of bipolar disorder. He uh, is an author, and he has also is currently working as a therapist in Sao Paulo, Brazil. Sean, welcome to the show. Hi, Al. Thanks for having me. So, Sean, I know you've got your own experience of living with bipolar disorder. It seems like you didn't really experience any kind, and correct me if I'm wrong, any kind of challenges or struggles with mental illness until soon after college? Yeah, well, I, I think maybe I should clarify that I, I never considered myself to have bipolar disorder until I had an experience where I was hospitalized, okay? okay. And so... um and even after that, I never really adopted the label of having bipolar disorder. And to be honest, I never had another episode uh, of of what you would call mania going into psychosis, except for the first episode, which happened when I was 30. And right now, I'm, I'll be 54 at the end of the month. Okay. 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 But, but yeah, I was hospitalized for four days. Um, yeah. So, so one episode... So as a kid, even looking back on it as a kid, did you have anything that you would say, oh, yeah, there were certainly some signs and symptoms of depression or bipolar disorder or psychosis or anything like that? Uh, well, I'll be honest. I, I think that probably compared to most of your listeners, I had a pretty blessed childhood. Okay. 
I was one of those kids that was sort of top of the class, always getting straight A's. I had good schools. I lived in a decent, you know, middle class neighborhood back when, you know, in the in the um, 1970s. I mean, the drug issues were almost non-existent, and and where they were there it was considered taboo, you know. Right. Um, and everybody knew that they weren't. It wasn't like marijuana was considered a vitamin the way it is today. Um, Did you grow and, up in uh, Canada? Yeah, I grew up uh, outside of Toronto in a suburb called Scarborough. Scarborough, okay. uh, yeah, a suburb of Toronto. And um, went to Catholic schools, grew up Catholic, and had a pretty, you know, decent life, you know. Any siblings? Um, yeah, one brother, you know, two parents, intact family. They loved each other. Yeah. Um, and so at least going into university – I didn't really see a whole lot in my life that I could complain about, especially looking at the people around me and, and what other people might be dealing with. I considered myself to have a bit of a blessed childhood, you know. Um, but when I went into university, I, I started to have some, you might say, existential issues start to come up. Uh, I was wondering about my place in the world, how I fit in, and I'm in university and I'm struggling with, um, you know, where is all this taking me? You know, where where is this university education taking me? And it just, it didn't make sense to me that I would be getting all this education just to go out in the world and sell more stuff. And from my middle class background, it looked like my future was somehow destined to be a some some corporate executive or a sales rep that moves up the the corporate ladder. I mean, the idea of doing anything sort of outside the box was was really considered strange, kind of a hippie thing to do, and you're never going to survive like that. You and know, do those you were sort think, of the messages that were given to me? Right. Do you think you had? Do you think it was any more so than a typical college student who may be wondering what the hell they were going to do with their life? Uh, maybe a little bit more than most, you know, maybe a little bit more than most. Um, you know, when I graduated university, when I, and I was about 25 when I graduated, I 24, 25 when I graduated because the Canadian system is longer and, and I did have a year off where I went to Australia. I was down there in Australia. So like I said, I had a, I had a pretty good life, Right. but getting out of university, I still didn't know what I wanted to do. And I went to career counseling and, um, and it, I was still stuck with questions about the planet, you know, like all the stuff you see people freaking out about right now about like um, the climate and huge inequality and and where's all this going? You know, I was really struggling with that, you know, 30 and years ago. I was right? just going to say that was like 1990 or so, right? Yeah, around 1990. Yeah. yeah. Wow. So you were ahead of the times in that area I, I i guess you know i guess i was ahead of the times at that point I'm, i know i'm exhausted from that conversation now i can tell you that right um were you concerned about it years. to the were you concerned about it to the point that was giving you anxiety and concern and worry yeah because i had to pick a career and everything looked like it, nothing really inspired me you know, right. nothing, nothing really inspired me. I also got into a relationship in university, which wasn't particularly um, healthy for me. It was just like a, a regular sexual relationship that 
but there was no feelings there. You know what right, I mean? Right, right. Yeah. No, and I didn't realize it at the time, but that it had an impact and had another relationship that wasn't, you know, so good for me. Uh, and then I, I got into advertising because, and this is kind of ironic, you know, it's like I was, a lot of my studies in school were related to sociology and, um, and I was studying a lot of religion and religions and what religions are about because I came up through Catholic school and trying to sort of get to the bottom of religion in a sense, you might say. And I, I left university with more questions than answers. But when I started looking for a career, I started to turn towards advertising because advertising was about ideas and religion was about ideas. And I'm probably going to be pretty good at that. So let's give it a shot. Right. You know? And I had this religious, I had this sociology background of research. So I got into sort of the starting out in kind of the the research end of advertising. You know? Right. I'm curious yeah. too if you could tell us a little bit more about two different relationships that you br- mentioned. Just uh-huh. I'm curious why you would bring those up in the context of this conversation. So it's just making me think that there's more to it. Like, do you think it had an those relationships had an impact one way or another on your mental health? Well, you know, I, I, I feel like I started to go, at the time I didn't realize it, okay, but I felt like I started to go into a sort of a depression or when there, there was kind of a, a gray cloud over my life in the mid-20s. Up until then, I was sort of like, almost like a, almost like a golden boy you might hear, you know? Right. I mean, I, I had my issues, I had my struggles, but... Um, everything went by pretty smoothly, you know. Yeah. But then this sort of gray cloud around, especially around career, started to seep in. And um, I think there was um, the relationship wasn't good for me. And I and then I, I when, once I got into the working world in advertising, I was really struggling with that too because okay, I could I could sort of do something here that I could make a living at or something. But my first jobs in advertising uh, were in media, where you're buying and selling advertising space. Right. And I didn't really click with that job. It, it, I found it boring, and I was making a lot of mistakes, and I didn't really enjoy the job. And yet, I was there for four years. I couldn't get out of that space. And my career was, at that time, it was just very important for me. And you know, I'm like firstborn son, you know, you're sort of supposed to go out there and slay the world in a sense. Um, and I'd always had good grades in university, not great, but good enough. And um, getting out into advertising, and it just wasn't satisfying, you know, and and and, and it was a struggle. And, and especially once I got into those, you know, second and third year in advertising. Was it stressful? I started to, yeah, it was stressful. And it was the kind of job where nobody notices what you're doing unless you've made a mistake. Right. You know? And I was actually getting stomach pains when I was in my second year in advertising, working in the media. I was getting stomach pains. Um, I was in a second kind of mediocre relationship, too. Just Mm -hmm. sort of went from one to the other. And wasn't feeling particularly good about myself, you know. So I Um, wonder, is there a connection between the study of religion and having these relationships that were more sexual based than feeling based or am I just making that up? <laughs> uh, well, no, I think that's a kind of an interesting question. I think I had been one of those people that living 
really under under a Catholic roof. You know, going to Catholic schools, my mother was Catholic, my father was Baptist. But I did grow up with a feeling like kind of God was on my side. God was kind of protecting me, you know. I used to pray. I read the Bible from cover to cover, age four. It took me one page a night for five years. So wow. 14 to 18, and I read the whole thing. That you know? is dedication at that age, yeah. too. Holy smokes. Yeah, and um, yeah, and... And and when I started to question that, it was almost like it's kind of like God died for me in okay, a way, right? You know, and 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 by the time I was in mid my the middle of university, then I I was sort of feeling this sort of godless world, this flat land, you know, right? And and I was really an agnostic after studying all these religions and studying everything you could about religion. My God, I studied for four years in different ways. And by the end, I was like an agnostic, right? Which essentially believes in no religion. Yeah. And, and that there's no real way to know that there's a God or not. Right. Right. See, functionally, I don't think it's that much different than being an atheist, mm-hmm. you know, but it's this idea that if you're really to use your rational, logical mind, you're not going to find God. God does not exist. Right. Logically, rationally, you know. What and, I had, and so, go what, ahead. What I had always learned, and I, I could be way off base here, was that uh-huh. agnostics were kind of like unknowing, right? Like, it, there could be a God, there might not be a God, I don't really believe or know what to believe. And atheists were oftentimes like, there is no way there's a God, and many times they came to to become atheist when like they had a spouse who died at a young age or a child or some tragic event that drove them away from religion where they became atheist to say nope there is no way there's a god okay with atheism i i don't know what drives people to atheism but i i do think there are other people like me who just sort of did the math on it and went right. well <laughs> logically rationally there can't be a god you know my my take was that there's no way of knowing, right? You know, right? And which functionally puts you into a godless world, mm-hmm. where really at the end of the day, the only thing there is to do is go out and make money, you know? Right. And that's where that's where my career started, and sort then, of in that kind of a place. Yeah. So you had these yeah. couple of relationships, advertising, which sounded like a struggle, and then you mentioned yeah. stomach aches, and these were kind of unexplained. Do you have a sense of what drove those? Well, when you work in a media department, and again, I'm talking about something going on 30 years ago in my life, right? Right, yep. Uh, when you're working in a media department, there's a lot of data entry, and if you make a mistake with that data, it can cost a client thousands of dollars, mm-hmm. okay? Um, and you can get in a lot of trouble. And right. you're making very little money. So, I mean, it is a thankless job. And I think that only really devoted people to media really love it. Because for me, it was like almost as soon as I stepped in there, it just wasn't working for me. You know? yeah. But well, I kept, I, and I kept I've heard, trying, though. And I've heard high, high, very high stress, very cutthroat. I know an, yeah, a guy who left on the weekends. Yeah, and I know a guy who left advertising. He was actually he had won a couple of awards, and then like a year later, he was let go, and, and there yeah, was really no rhyme or reason. He couldn't even figure it out. Yeah, it's a it's a tough business. I, I mean, I think that for some people, they if it's their place in life. But I was I worked for seven ad agencies in nine years. Wow, and 
I just never found my place. Yeah. You know? And I, I hear you. So I hear you saying without actually saying it, that these stomach aches were um, manifestation of your stress. Yeah. Yeah. And I think, although I didn't realize it at the time, because at the time I thought of depression as something that happens to you outside of your external circumstances. Um, like someone's like you could give somebody a million dollars and they'd still be depressed, you know, like that kind of thing. That was my interpretation of depression at the time. I didn't study any of this stuff at the time, but, uh, for me, I just saw that my job was this problem that I needed to solve. I didn't realize that I was actually going into a sort of mid-level depression because of, well, what I was experiencing at work. Right. You know what I mean? Yep. Yep. And and so the whole time I was depressed, <laughs> I don't think I really realized I was depressed. But let me put it this way: if I told you that um, I'm having a hard time at work, and I took a week off, holiday, just a holiday for a week, and then on the Monday to go back to work, I could not get out of bed, and I called in sick just because I could not face my office. Yeah. Would that not be a sign of depression? That that certainly could be a symptom of depression. Yeah. It reminds yeah. me how I, I was depressed when I, I was in a promotional position working as a principal. Some of the listeners may have heard this story, but I, I found myself literally driving down the highway going about 40 miles an hour, like dangerously slow. <laughs> and okay. I, I did not want to get there. <laughs> if I figured if I went slow enough, I, I don't know, the day would be over when I got there or something was just crazy yeah, but yeah, yeah you so you got to a point where you couldn't get out of bed yeah it it i mean i went in actually i think i went in a few days later and i quit that job okay okay yeah but um yeah it was at that point you know it was it was pretty pretty strong and i remember one breakthrough happened for me because um i was in i was living with my girlfriend, one of these difficult relationships I'm telling you about. And we had a cat. She had brought a cat home one day and I kind of fell in love with the cat. And one night I came home after work. I'd been drinking with um, some guys from work and I came home a little drunk and I looked at this cat and I was like, why are you happier than me? You are a cat. I'm an educated human. <laughs> Why is a cat happier than I am? And that's when my mind started to kind of loosen up a little bit, you might say. Uh-huh. You know, because up until then I was really rational. But then I was like, how could a cat be happier than me? Because it was obvious this cat was happier than me. <laughs> right. You know, and then, then I was like, well, so intelligence does not equal happiness. You know, that's, that's a start. Right, right. So at this so, point... Yeah. Um, did you start to realize that you may be going through depression and did you reach out for any kind of help? No. <laughs> no, I didn't. I Instead, I went to Vancouver and goes, <laughs> what happened? And it's kind of strange. Um, I realized I, it's, it's a bit of a long story, but I realized at one point I needed to quit my job. And the same day I was quitting my job, my girlfriend, girlfriend came home and she dumped me. So I lost my girlfriend and my job on the same day. Did she right? take the cat? <laughs> In the end, she did take the cat. Oh, yeah, no. she had to, because, because I moved to Vancouver and it was like, as soon as she dumped me, it was like, oh, I can move to Vancouver now. And that was like an opening. In Vancouver, you know, I lived in Toronto. I moved to Vancouver. It was a three-day drive away. 
right? And I went out to Vancouver and driving out to Vancouver, it was like this weight lifted off of me and I could actually, it, it was like I colors became more vivid on the drive. Greens looked greener. The sky looked bluer. And when I got out to Vancouver, I called my parents and I said, I believe in God again. Because there had been a, a subtle opening. It wasn't a big opening, but there was a subtle opening and it was experiential. Okay. And so then I moved to Vancouver and things were great for about six months. And you went out there without a job or had you had something lined up? I went out there without a job, but the minute I quit in Toronto, they started offering me potential opportunities in Vancouver at their Vancouver office. It was quite a complex situation, but it was really as if when I was in Toronto and looking for other jobs, trying to get a better position somewhere that nothing would move. And then when I made, made that choice, the totally irrational choice or a rational intuitive choice to move to Vancouver where I knew nobody, I had no job opportunities. I had no funds. I just went. Things started to open up for me. That's incredible. It, it, what yeah, was the driving it, force? Why Vancouver? I mean, obviously everybody knows it's a, just supposed to be a beautiful, amazing place. Was that the, the impetus to go there? I think so. It was in the early 90s and or maybe getting into the mid 90s now. And um, there had been a lot of buzz out there at that time. Don't forget, I'm Canadian. So in Canada, there's only three major cities. I mean, there's there's Montreal, there's Toronto and Vancouver. Right. And the rest of the cities are quite small by comparison, you know. Yeah. And uh, in Vancouver, I'd been thinking about going out there for a couple of years um, I like the idea of being on the West Coast. Toronto was kind of turning me off culturally, you know. And um, yeah, and so I went and um, everything worked out great, except that I ended up, believe it or not, in the same company working for the same guy that I was working for in Toronto. <laughs> oh my God. He had moved to Vancouver too. My supervisor and my director who were in Toronto moved to Vancouver and were there by the time I arrived. Oh my goodness. And they offered me a job and they offered me a job for a lot more money. And they were kind of like, look, I'm sorry it didn't work out in Toronto. I know you had it tough, but hey, let's give it another shot, you know. And um, in the beginning, it was fine. Were you re a little well. resistant knowing how difficult your experience had been? Sure, but I was also broke. Yeah, you know, I, right. I was renting a room in a guy's house turned yeah. out to be a real weirdo and I, I had only had three thousand dollars and my money was running out right and so when they made me the offer to work freelance i took it and things started to come together and click and you, know? you and you had this incredible drive recognizing like heightened senses believe yeah. all of a sudden all of a sudden believing in god again yeah and, and yeah. tell us more where does that lead you to <laughs> well Things got really trippy when I was in Vancouver because everything seemed to be run by, you know, synchronicities, like coincidences that are going on inside. Like a, a synchronicity is like a coincidence that reflects what you're thinking about. So it just feels like you're part of the reason that this external thing happened to you. Like you, you think know? it and then it happens. Yeah. Uh -huh. Like to give you an idea, when I was driving across the country and I, and I drove through the United States uh, to get there, I went from Toronto to Detroit 
and then Detroit down to Chicago and Chicago across to uh, probably Idaho or Montana and then up into Calgary and then down through the mountains to Vancouver. Okay, so I was going through the U.S. there and um, I started having these insights about how I feel different when I'm with one person in my life than another. Like I had this friend, uh, God rest his soul, a friend of mine who passed away named Chris, and we would end up in arguments about politics all the time. And the thing was, I didn't care about politics. I wasn't interested, and I never had these arguments with anybody else, just him. But then I was a completely different way with another person, almost like there was like a Sean-Chris energy or a Sean-Dave energy, and those energies were completely different. Hmm. So I, I'm start, And I'm starting to think about synchronicities, the way this trip to Vancouver, everything at work got easier once I decided to move to Vancouver. For example, well, one example always, is your two bosses show up there and offer you a yeah, job. That's another one. <laughs> and and when I was leaving my job too, I used to have stacks and stacks of contracts to go through and check, and some of them would just never leave my desk, you know. And then the second I told them that I was leaving, it was like everything on my desk disappeared within a couple of days. And and it wasn't because they had shifted uh, less responsibility to me. I was doing the same job. I had the same responsibilities. No one was taking my place. And yet everything just started to flow. You didn't just you put know? a garbage can at the end of your desk and no, shovel it I all didn't. in? <laughs> I, was, I was doing my job and I told, I would even tell people, I said, man, if the last two months of my job, because I gave them eight weeks so they could prepare. You right. know? Wow. Um, I said, if, if uh, the last two months of my job were this good the rest of the time, I probably never would have quit. Right. Really. It was just very enjoyable all of a sudden, you know. So, um, yeah, and, and so I'm thinking about things like my, my energetic feelings with different people, how I feel with, with different people, and, um, and the synchronicities like the bosses arriving in Vancouver and, and a lot of other friends from Toronto moved to Vancouver at the same time too. And then I get out to Vancouver and I'm having dinner with a friend from Toronto who had just moved out there as well. And I'm telling him about all this stuff happening. And he says to me, he goes, you know, what you're talking about was in this book, which is a bestseller in the 90s called The Celestine Prophecy. Have you ever heard of it? I have Celestine Prophecies. Okay. This book was like number one on um, the New York Times bestsellers for 52 weeks straight. And it was the reason that they created a new age uh, bestseller list on the New York Times list because – it was just that all the new age books were just going up the charts in the 90s, you know. But anyways, what happened was he starts talking to me about this book. And then I get on the phone with my ex-girlfriend about the book. And she's read it. And I start to tell her everything I was thinking about. And what I was thinking about were in, in this book, they had all of these insights um, about what life was like, about things like synchronicities happening, et cetera, et cetera. And the first six insights, which were the first six chapters of the book, I had already thought all that stuff out on the way to from Toronto to Vancouver. Everything. Whoa, that is a weird coincidence. <laughs> yeah, until I got to the end of the book, which was like the ninth, ninth insight, and everybody in the book, all these beings who were invisible became invisible. And then I went, oh, come on, man. And I shut the book. I was like, that's too much for me. <laughs> but the, um, yeah, there were these six insights. It was like, it was like the book, the insights of the book had some sort of, I had some sort of download, you know, that made me think of these things, you know. So I had this opening spiritually at, the, at that time in Vancouver, okay. But then what happened was after about six to eight months when I was in Vancouver, it just felt like I was back into the same patterns again. 
And I was coming back home from work at like six o'clock or seven o'clock at night and just going straight to bed. And then when I woke up in the morning, you know, at 7 a.m. after 14 hours of sleep, I was just dragging myself to the office, like just dragging myself to the office. And, and dreading being in the job again? Yeah. And feeling like, you know, I think one big sign of a depression is when you look back at your life and you think that every single choice you had made up until now was a mistake. Right. And that's how I felt at that time. It was like, I never should have done this. I never should have done that. Why did I go to University of Toronto? Why did I study religion? Why did I get into advertising? Why did I date these girls or have these relationships? Why did I move to Vancouver? It was just like every step in my life had taken me deeper and deeper into a place of despair. And did you start experiencing more symptoms of depression again? Were there more stomach aches or unexplained pains? Funny enough, the stomach aches cleared up. Because the stomach aches were really about fear. And when I moved from Toronto to Vancouver, that was my first step to sort of say, you know what, fuck fear. Yeah. I'm going to go right belly of fear and drive to another city where I have no contacts, I've got no money, and I'm going to make this work. You know? Right. And I did. And I did. And even when things started getting difficult when I was in Vancouver, I told my boss out there, a, a Vancouverite boss, one of them, one of my many bosses, I said, listen, I got stomach problems when I, from this job back in Toronto, and that is not going to happen again, you know? Yeah, and how did he react to that? Uh, she was like, well, that's good. She was kind of supportive of uh -huh. that. <laughs> and, and what exactly did you mean by it? Like, I, I'm done working, or I need a lighter caseload, or? What did I mean by that? You know, like I guess I meant that I was just not going to sit there and just take a ton of work and take a ton of crap from people and just, I don't know, just, just, just get beat up at the office every day. Right. You know, um, I, I don't remember the exact details around that, but I remember sort of standing up for myself and saying, hey, you know, because I remember one of the things that happened out there was we had had a staff of 13 or 14 people in this media department out there. It was a sort of a small operation. And then when uh, there was a whole slew of women that got pregnant who worked there, and our 13-person staff was down to like eight, and our boss was expecting us eight people to do the work of 13 people. Wow. You know? Yeah. And it was like, fuck that. I mean, I'm not doing it. And so instead of getting all my work done for, you know, staying, staying until 9 p.m. at night or coming in on Sundays, after that it was just like, going home at five o'clock. Bye. Right. You know, that kind of thing. And, and, then, and then wondering what the hell I'm going to do. Cause I was still unhappy. I was still depressed, but I was standing up for myself a little bit more. Yeah. And then did you end up getting behind in work and have a, once again, the stacks of, of papers and things that you had to get through? Well, in this case, I was recommended by my ex-girlfriend to take a, a self-help course. And it was called the landmark forum. Uh, maybe some of the people listening have heard of it. Yeah, I've pretty heard of it. Yeah. And uh, I signed up for this course. And the course was supposed to be in Vancouver. And and around that time, I also decided, I think it was just right after that. I, I, wrote, it, I wrote about it in my book. I can't remember the story completely. But at that time, I decided to quit. I said, you know what? I'm going to quit. I love it in Vancouver. I don't know what's going to happen to me, but I'm just going to leave my advertising career behind and that's it. 
And the day I went into advertise my my uh, agency to tell them I was going to quit, my supervisor told me that there was a, a job in a different department that I was trying to get into. It was a very sort of niche position um, called account planning where you sort of go out in the field and do research with real people and come up with creative strategies. And I'd been trying to get into that area for three years and I, I could never get in. And then the day I decided to quit, she told me about a position that had opened up back in Toronto. Okay. Oh my goodness. Yeah. And so I was, I was going in there to end my career and then all of a sudden this position comes up and, um, and I had signed up for the landmark forum to, to do a seminar in Vancouver and I realized I was moving back to Toronto. So this was like about a year and a half later. And I went back to Toronto and I took the, this landmark forum. Okay. You took and it on, in, in Vancouver before going back, right? I, I signed up for it in uh, Vancouver, but then I ended up taking it in Toronto. Okay. Gotcha. And I, I sort of moved the registration because right. it's a national kind yep. of thing. It's the U.S. all over the U.S. Um, and it was on that course that my depression broke. For like, almost I would say for good. Really? It was, was, yeah, yeah. It broke my depression for good. It also put me in the psychiatric hospital. Wow. So, (laughs) and, and the course, just to be clear, can you give us just a kind of the, the nutshell version of what the landmark course entails? Cause it's not about mental health per se, is it? I think I'm definitely going to get it wrong. It's a very difficult course to explain. I think they're doing more with you on an energetic level than they admit to. But they basically put 150 people in a room and they tell you that the reason you're unhappy, whatever reason you're here, the reason you're having so many problems is because of you. You are the problem. That's where they start. And then they start to point out things that we do in our lives how we sabotage ourselves, the strategies we use to be right. Instead of improving our relationships, we would rather be right than improve our relationships, things like that. And they get, to be honest, they get quite confrontational with you. One of the things that they've said is, look, we've got three days to undo what society has been doing to you for your entire life. And that's why we're tough. You know, if I remember right, and Please correct me if I'm wrong, but I'm pretty sure there were uh, at least one journalist who wrote about them as more of a cult than anything else. Looking back, I think that they do have some cult-like properties, you know, especially when you start to get more involved in them, you know, like starting to take the advanced courses and and then they they want you to work for them as um, sort of volunteers. And the volunteers, you know, there's lots of volunteers and they don't get paid and all the money goes upstairs, you know. Right. Um, So there is that side of it. But I think that there's also a very beneficial side for a lot of people. Mm -hmm. But the trouble was that I was kind of getting quite excited about the course, quite excited about what I was learning on the first day. And then on the second day, they uh, asked us to do a meditation. And the meditation was on fear. And when, had you when ever I, meditated before? Very little, but I had just started exploring meditation and Buddhism when I was in Vancouver. Okay. Right. Um, and new age stuff. You know, when I went out there, I, like I said, I did have an opening. I was starting to explore God again. I got my horoscope done for the first time, you know, never had that. And the world did start, start to look a little bit looser, a little bit more interesting. Um, 
kind of esoteric to me instead of sort of hard and flat and rigid and rational like I was living in Toronto. Everything got kind of mystical out there. Um, but I wasn't, I didn't have a disorder. It's just sort of the way I saw the world, you know, and, and things felt much better. Right. But when I was on this course, um, they asked us to do a meditation on our fear, and I didn't think I felt any fear. But then I had an image come to me related to a scuba diving accident that I had had two months earlier. Because when I was in Vancouver, I had been, um, I started to take some scuba diving lessons and was scuba diving in the Pacific Ocean. But I had an accident one day where I lost my weight belt and I was about 90 feet below sea level. Okay. Yeah. And um, the minute I saw, like, I remember looking at my depth gauges and I was ascending because I'd lost my weight belt. I was ascending very fast and I was exhaling like crazy, looking at my weight gauges, wonder, watching if I was going to die before I hit the surface. You right. Know? Very dangerous situation. Yeah, yeah, it was. And when I went there in the meditation, it was just like, boom. I just felt this really strong punch at my at my heart or my chest, you know. And then I just started bawling, you know. And I, and I realized that I had actually been traumatized by the scuba diving accident. Right. And that um, this meditation just opened all of that up and I started crying and, and I felt more connected to other people. I realized that I wasn't afraid of other people anymore the way I was before. I didn't realize I'd been afraid, but I was, you know. And um, and then everything started to get kind of sparkly, we might say. And you're talking like immediately after feeling this massive punch to your chest, essentially, immediately yeah. following the sparkles came. Yeah, everything, my senses all sharpened. Uh, when I went home that night, because I was staying with my parents, the wallpaper on the wall got more detailed. The curtains got more detailed. I could smell things I couldn't smell before. Um, and I was very emotional. And my parents were telling me they were getting worried about me, you know. And um, even though the course was like going from 8 a.m. until midnight, I was up at 2 a.m. writing all this stuff down, which was like all these things I thought were important insights. And maybe there were some insights, but I'm sure a lot of it was nonsense. And I was just writing pages and pages. And I had very intense conversations with my mother about my upbringing. And it turned out that my upbringing had been a lot more cold than I had really acknowledged. You know, it was a, it was a colder childhood. It, it was still a, a good family. And, you know, a lot of people would have envied me to have the childhood I had. But there was a coldness there, you know, that, that I had never acknowledged. Um, so all this just sort of burst out of me at the Landmark Forum until after five days, I thought I died. <laughs> I thought I was on the last day of the course and I was like, oh, this is what it must feel when you're dead because I felt so complete and so whole. And then I thought, well, I think I died during that scuba diving accident. So you literally, then, I mean, you truly believed you had died. Yeah. Wow. Yeah, I did. And I thought that everything was like a theater, that I was in some sort of purgatory and I had to go to, I had to sort of surrender to go to God. Right. You know, yeah. And, and that led to me um, being in a hotel ballroom because the last day of the course was in a hotel. And I, and I moved over to the other, uh, another hotel ballroom and I thought I was going to meet God there. And so I peed on the uh, ballroom floor. That could get uh, you in some trouble, I would imagine. Yeah, because, you know, it was like, I even read about this later. It was like 
Ah, uh, the great surrender. When it comes time to let go of everything, the first thing to go is your bladder. Oh, wow. You know? And then I was like afraid of, I was like, oh, well, this is my urine. And I recognized my fear of my own bodily functions. And so I just laid down in my own urine, you know? Wow. Uh, yeah. So clearly at this point, experiencing some type of psychosis. Yeah. Well, I mean, that's how it would be defined, right? I yeah. mean, that's. And but and then when the security guards came in, uh, I refused to put my clothes on. Um, oh, you were standing so, there naked. Well, they I had my shirt off, and they okay. wanted me to put my shirt back on. And when they insisted, I took my pants off too. <laughs> so I was just in my underwear. Okay, just in my underwear. Right. And um, but then of course they called the police, and and then the the ambulance came, and I still thought they were taking me to heaven, if you can believe that, and. I was one of the lucky ones. I mean, the, the, the police were not that – they were a little bit physically tough because I was a big, strong guy. But they were actually quite nice with me. And even at the psychiatric hospital, I thought the psychiatric hospital was a spaceship, you know, taking me to heaven. And so I just that's what, that, that was, was their first stop. They're like, we're, we're going straight to the psychiatric yeah. hospital. Yeah, yeah. Do you I'm remember so engaging with those guys who were trying to get you out of there? Were you in conversation with them? Uh, oh, trying to get me out of the hotel? Well, yeah, yeah, right. The guys who met you yeah. in the ballroom, trying to get you out. Do you remember engaging with them? Yeah, I remember everything. And, um, and were you, know, you trying to say, talk them out of it or explain to them that you're on your way to heaven? or wh yeah, what? I, yeah, they told me that I needed to come with them. And they told me I had two choices. I could go to jail or I could go to the psychiatric hospital. And I said, so I've got one choice. And I put up one finger, my index finger, and then I said, okay, that's jail. The second choice is the psychiatric hospital. And they said, yeah. I said, well, I'm taking the third choice. And they said, what's that? And then I turned my hand to them. And I said, I'm choosing peace. <laughs> <laughs> I thought it was going to be your middle finger, but peace. No, like, okay. All no, right. I'm choosing peace. And that's when they <laughs> got the cuffs out. And that was about the end of that, you know? <laughs> right. Yeah. The peace but comment they, did it. Yeah. But, the, but I'll tell you that that whole experience was very mystical, very beautiful, I felt very whole for the first time in my life. And even though I got hospitalized, I just thought the doctors were idiots. And uh, I took a little bit of medication. I did, they strapped me to a hospital bed. I was okay with that. But then they forcibly injected me. And that was like rape. You know, that, that's tough. When you got six guys with their hands on you and you're in your underwear, and then they inject you from the back on your thigh, that, that's very uh, traumatizing, you know. Right, right. Um, and that was tough. And when once that happened, I was like, whoa, maybe I'm not going to heaven. Maybe I'm a little confused. Maybe it started to break my delusion when they got tough with me like that. Okay. Yeah. And then and then I went to sleep. And when I woke up, like, I think I slept for 48 hours or something. But when I woke up, I was uh, there. My parents were there. And I just said, I don't really know what's going on. And... I don't know. Did I don't know what happened. You knew where you were? I knew what it looked like. Uh -huh. I knew it looked like I was in a psychiatric hospital. I knew it looked like these were my parents and this is my doctors. But I wasn't convinced that what I was seeing was actually what was really happening. Right. See, I thought all of these people could have been avatars. And we could all be in heaven. Um, we could be in the matrix. I, I don't know. We could be in some sort of other dimensional reality. We'll put it like that. Right. Okay. And when you woke, did you also remember the whole hotel experience? 
Yeah, I remembered everything. Okay. I remembered it. Right. Yeah. And I know you, I could tell already, I mean, you pushed back a bit when I said you were experiencing some type of psychosis. I get the feeling that you are going to describe it as something other than a psychosis. <laughs> well, um, when my parents asked me to see a doctor or to see a psychologist about what happened to me, because I went home a few days later and I didn't even take any medication. You know, I, I took some, I think I took some sleeping pills. I don't know what they gave me in the hospital, but. But you stayed that, there I, for a few days. I was there for four days. And that was um, just to stabilize go, you essentially? I don't really know. They told me I was a little bit high and, and they also had the awareness that sometimes people have one break and, and that's it. You know, right. they call it. Um, but I also received the possible diagnosis of bipolar or schizophrenia at the time. They said it could be this, could be that, or it could be a one-time episode, you know. But for them, it was a disaster. And for my family, it was a disaster. But for me, it felt fantastic. It was like liberating, right? Um, and deep in my faith, you know, in, in this sort of higher intelligence, right? Um, in a non-religious way, not connected to any religion. Um, and tell and us so more that, about that. What, what was it that made it horrific for others, yet you thought it was one of the most incredible experiences you've had? Well, because there's the way you're acting on the outside, which looks like you've just lost it, and you're talking about things that nobody really understands what you're talking about. And and your end, once, once the psychiatrists were getting aggressive with me, I was getting aggressive with them, too. When people would get aggressive with me, sometimes I was getting aggressive with them. And that's a pretty common thing. And and this is all very upsetting for the family, you know. Right. It's a disaster. And, and, you know, based on my background, I was the last person that anyone would ever think would end up in the psychiatric hospital. Right. You know? And so um, I get why yeah. they thought it was horrific. What makes you yeah. say that, that it was actually such an incredible experience that I, I know yeah. you've described as being grateful for it? Yeah, yeah. Well, because I, I think I was a person that, Never felt like I fit in. Uh, never felt like I knew enough. Felt like I needed something else to be successful in life, to be happy in life, these kind of things. And then all of a sudden it was like, boom. And all of these resources open up inside of you and this love opens up and this feeling of connectedness and your emotions start flowing in a way that they've never flown, flowed before. And you just think, well, this is so good, I must be dead. You know, right? Yeah, and and what I didn't know at the time is that that experience is not so different from what a lot of people get diagnosed with as bipolar disorder, right? You know, as a mania. Uh, yeah, as a mania. Yeah, and what happened with me was I went for a year, not really. I went back to work. My, uh, I, it took about five or six months to integrate. But I finally went back to work in Toronto at a much better job, mm -hmm. still in advertising, but a much better job. My salary tripled in three years. No Whoa. job. Tripled. So, you know, before yeah. we get to this new job that was uh, put you in a great spot, uh, can you describe more? I know it's difficult to, but uh, can you describe what it was <laughs> like inside of you that makes it so wonderful? Because I got to tell you, as somebody listening to it, I mean... You, you took your pants down, you peed in the middle of an empty ballroom, and you got lifted out by cops. 
And it right. just doesn't, it does not sound like a beautiful experience to me yet. You continue to s- describe it as, and, and all I could really put my finger on was heightened senses. And I'm wondering if you could give me and listeners just a little more of a sense of what's going inside of you and is this, and what you are actually experiencing and feeling. I know that's probably really challenging. Yeah, I guess, um, well, the first thing is you don't know what a strawberry tastes like until you've tasted it, right? right? Yep. You don't don't really understand sex until you've had sex. Right. Right. It's it's a little bit like that. I, I you you really don't have words, and and one of the symptoms of what they would call a mystical experience in in there have been pioneering psychologists who've studied mystical experiences is one of the symptoms is that it is ineffable, meaning that you can't really describe it. Right. You can't really give it more than than what I've told you. And I you know I can tell you that it's a greater feeling of wholeness and even maybe ecstasy, but Still, that doesn't give you the feeling. Right, you know, right. You know. But it but, was but certainly I, all really a, a beautiful, wonderful, great feeling experience, the entire thing. I mean, other than obviously sure. being held down and getting this shot. Yeah, yeah. And it was very clear to me that there was something going on outside of me with all these people, and I didn't know who they were. I didn't know what they were doing. I, I really was confused. And this thing that was going on inside of me which was like this rebirth you know just felt like a spiritual rebirth yeah and this uh this may sound a little silly but in my mind like all these incredible beautiful wonderful feelings you're experiencing i envision you like running through a field picking lilacs and sunflowers (laughs) right i don't expect you to be in a ballroom stripping naked and peeing Um, so I guess I'm trying to reconcile like the beautiful, wonderful experience you have and this, um, outside experience of what people are seeing and, and it's interesting. So you just, you describe it as a mystical, um, experience, right? Right. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, an experience that involved God. Sure. For lack of a better word, Uh, you know, a a lot of people, especially. Especially in the Midwest, they'll think of maybe God like a man with a beard or, or something like this. I don't see it in that way. I think that's one way to look at God, but it's it's just more of a a divine intelligence, a divine loving intelligence that really runs through everything. Right. You know. And a lot of people would probably hear that and go, "Oh, he sounds like Oprah Winfrey," but eh, I guess so. <laughs> some uh, some type of greater power. I've heard it described. Yeah. As. Yeah. Right. And I guess the big difference is that, you know, when you're sort of a materialist kind of person going through the world, just trying to make your way, you can you can sort of see God as um, sort of some force out there. You know, it's just this force out there, but it doesn't really impact your life. But then once you've had this kind of experience, there's a understanding and knowing of the intimacy that 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 divine intelligence is in on this phone call, like right now, you know, it's running through my cells as we speak. It's running through your cells as we speak, you know, it's, it's there always. And your belief system does not matter. (laughs) It doesn't matter whether you're an atheist or a Buddhist or a a Catholic. It just doesn't matter that uh, field and that intelligent love is there regardless, you know? Right. It doesn't so, mean there's not work to do. 
Yeah. That we've got work to do, but, but that's there, you know. And, and are you in disbelief when the doctors say, you know, you could have bipolar disorder, you could have schizophrenia, we don't really know it, maybe a one-time episode and you may not have any kind of mental illness? That kind of, I feel like that would leave you hanging, like, oh my God, what do I have and is this going to happen again and could it be worse, like a bad situation next time? What was going well, through your head? And, and what you just said, I think, is what happens with most people is that eventually, after certain days in the hospital, they start to internalize these things, like, oh my God, is there really something wrong with me? But I, I think I was very lucky because my experience was very positive. I was 30 at the time. I was very mature compared to a lot of people who have these first breaks at like 20 or yeah. 17. You yep. know? And I just thought I was surrounded by idiots and I need to get away from these idiots, period. That's like, it. Like they don't know what the hell they're talking about. My, I, had no a, I had an amazing, amazing mystical experience <laughs> and they just don't get it. Exactly. I yeah. mean, really no idea. You right. Know, no idea. And, um, it was a, a year later that I found the work of Dr. Stan Groff, and um, he, he had coined a term called spiritual emergency. And the term spiritual emergency, the idea was that people are having a spiritual experience that becomes so overwhelming that it begins to look like, quote, psychosis, okay? And um, that's why it becomes an emergency, and when I read his book, I was like, well, that's what happened to me. I didn't have a mental illness. I had a spiritual emergency. And, and that's where I started. Okay. Yeah. That's kind of where I started. Now, things developed, wow, beyond that, you know, this is what I thought 30 years ago. Things have become much more complex since then. Um, but that's how I sort of got my start. And, and that really broke my feeling of I am never going to get out of this depression, you know. Um, Years went by before I had another depression, and even when I was in that, the depression when I was about 37, I knew I was going to get out of it. I knew I was going to get out of it. It wasn't, it wasn't uh, the same degree. Right. Know? It was just a, a speed bump as right. opposed to a lifestyle. You know? uh, and did you have to work hard at making sure your depression didn't go too deep that, that time? Uh, at 37? Right. Um, not really. I didn't manage it. I just, I just moved to Brazil. <laughs> okay. All right. <laughs> that was really when I ended my career and I just sort of got the guts and my wife was Brazilian and, um, we moved to Brazil and, and that was really the end of it. You know, it was yeah. like, what, what happened Al, was I realized that if I didn't follow my heart, where my intuition was really taking me, that I was prone to go into depression. And I could probably still go into depression today if I just said, well, this is the real world and I have to conform. I have to do things which I rationally think I have to do. If I start to think rationally about how I'm going to run my life, I could very well end up depressed again. But I don't. I just say, you know what? Fuck it. I'm going to go for it. I'm going to do what I want to do. And that's it. And that comes from the heart. Right, right. Yeah. And so you moved to Sao Paulo with the woman yeah. uh, from Sao Paulo that you met, though, in Canada? I met her on a trip to Peru. Okay. Which was like a year later. Because even though I went back to advertising, I went back to um, uh, a better job and everything. But I was still looking for a way out. And I had a dream where I was being called to Peru by these Incan shaman. And uh, I 
I, I met a group that was associated with them outside of Detroit for one event. Then the next year I decided to go to Peru and that's where I met the woman who became my wife and we had the same birthday, March 27th. And, um, that was like an indicator like, okay, stick with this one. And Brazil felt very intriguing and one thing led to another. And now I've been in Brazil for 18 years. Wow. Was it your dream that led you to go meet with these people? In Peru, yeah. I had a dream, a vivid, vivid dream that I was in Peru and I was walking up on a plateau and I, and I saw these Incan shaman and they were doing a ritual with the sun. And there was a, a white woman there. And after this sun ritual was over, um, where the sun turned into a clock and then disappeared. And after the sun ritual... The Incan shamans went one way and me and this woman went the other way. And um, I didn't really know what the dream meant. But then I was in a New Age bookstore and I found a magazine where they talked about um, this big trip that was going on or these, these Incan shamans who were coming to the United States and they were coming outside of Detroit. And in the, in the ad it said that the Inca thought of themselves as the keepers of time. And when I heard that the Inca are the kink keepers of time, and I just dreamt about the Inca having the sun turn into a clock in the sky, I was like, this is it. I've got to follow this synchronicity. I was just going to say, once again, synchronicity. Yeah. So uh, I went down and I would ask them why I was there. And they would tell me they didn't know why I was there. (laughs) But um, they told me that they thought I was a shaman like them, but not for their culture, but for mine. And I met my uh, my wife, this woman who became my wife, Lisa. And um, uh, I mean, there was a lot of ups and downs. I read about it all in my book. Um, we we backpacked all through Brazil for a while, and then um, I tried advertising again, and again it was a disaster. And then eventually we moved here to São Paulo. And yeah. yeah, so you leave advertising, you end up in São Paulo, and tell yeah. us uh, where you go professionally <clears throat> from there. Sure. Um, it turns out that being an English teacher in Sao Paulo is a pretty good gig. Uh, you're freelance. You don't, after a year of training, you don't need a boss. And I was just doing freelance English teaching, uh, as we both were, for like the first five or six years that we were here. You know? Okay, yeah. So like from 2002 until 2007. And that was great. It was very freeing. And okay, I didn't have the career I thought I was going to have, but... When I when I considered all the bullshit I was leaving behind, it was like this huge, you know, leap forward. A know? lot less stress, I would imagine. Yeah, yeah, no stress. I felt like I was retired, actually. Right. And yeah, and I love Brazilians, and I would go out and I would teach these Brazilians, and it was just like meeting my friends, and I was just having this very light and easy life, and our bills were paid, and we had a roof over our head, and and everything was great. You know, everything's great. Um. But then in 2007, so and, and all this time, we had been looking for a calling, by the way. We, we traveled Brazil. We were looking for a spiritual calling. Uh, and we never really found it. But So we decided to stick with the shamanism that we had sort of picked up in Peru. We started practicing uh, North American shamanism with a group here in Sao Paulo. Uh, sweat lodges and sun moon dances and things like that where you can go like three days, no food, no water on these shamanic dances and things. And 
I had a lot of uh, interesting experiences there, strong experiences. I never did any drugs for, for anybody who's interested. No plant medicine for me, no mind-altering substances, okay? But uh, I was just sort of working on my own personal development. And then in 2007, I had two nieces here in Brazil that had episodes very similar to me happen just four months apart. And they were being diagnosed with bipolar disorder. And um, that's when I started to look into this relationship between the spiritual experience that I had and, and people with bipolar disorder and what goes on with them. Wow. And so you started on your own researching it? Yeah, yeah. And it started with just, I made a video called Am I Bipolar or Waking Up? I put that out there about my experience, asking if anybody out there with bipolar disorder has had anything similar to what happened to me, which was like this huge breakthrough for me. And yet for all these other people, they're medicated for life, you know. And um, then I just had comments coming in from all over the place and people reaching out to me saying, yes, I had an experience very similar to that and I'm medicated for life. So um, there are. So then I, I started to go di- deeper. Right. I have certainly heard of cases where people with diagnosed with bipolar one do have a mania that involves some piece of religiosity. I think I've heard it described as where they feel like they have become God and they are God, or yeah. they've become the devil, uh, or mm-hmm. you know, a lot around kind of religious types of delusions. Sure, sure. I, I think probably in most cases, probably 80 or 90% of people who go into psychosis have some spiritual or religious aspect to the whole thing. Right, right. Sure. And so you're saying these people who often have a mania like that are soon diagnosed with bipolar disorder and then prescribed medications to manage their bipolar disorder. Pretty much, that's and, it. And, and, yeah. and I don't want to speak for you, but I, I, I hear you saying... I mean, you describe it more as a spiritual experience and one in which, so how do you, how do you then believe they can be off of medications? Okay. Well, doing other work. Well, in research that I did, one thing I learned, I learned about the lives of the people who were being diagnosed with bipolar disorder. And the first thing I learned was that most people who are being diagnosed with bipolar disorder had lives that were much more difficult than mine. Okay. Right. Usually there's a fair amount of trauma going on there. Okay. Some, it's very common to have sex abuse there. There's been research regarding sex abuse and schizophrenia that uh, an Australian study showed that if you have been sexually penetrated by more than one adult by the time you're 10 years old, that your chances of psychosis and being di- diagnosed with schizophrenia multiply by 50. Wow. You know. And, so and you are you saying that, that's right? a misdiagnosis or that it could be an accurate oh. diagnosis? You... Well, they're going to, these people are going to show the signs of schizophrenia. Gotcha. But now you see, you see the, the issue that we get into is that if I say schizophrenia online, most people think, well, this is a genetic thing. You know, that schizophrenia is a genetic disorder. This is what we're all being taught, you know, by psychiatry and the mainstream medicine. But when you look at the relationship to trauma, um, and the research only started with that in about 2006, you know, that's when people started looking at the, the link between uh, mental disorders and trauma was in around 2006. And there's just a ton of research indicating that people who are having diagnosed with disorders are having traumatized lives, you know? Okay. Yeah. 
Um, and, you know, whether it's schizophrenia or schizoaffective disorder or bipolar disorder, you know, I'm a, I'm a therapist now. I'm, I'm a holotropic breathwork facilitator, and we can talk about that later, but it's a form of therapy. And so what I found working as a therapist here in Sao Paulo um, is that once I get to know people with schizoaffective disorder or bipolar disorder, usually I don't work with schiz- people with so-called schizophrenia, but with the other disorders, is most of the time they come to me and they say, well, the truth is that I was dealing with depression even before that. You know? Right. Yeah. So it seems like depression is the first step into the deeper disorders, which can lead to psychosis. And in my own case, I think that depression was the first step that, that led to my hospitalization as well. Right. So do you believe that there is a mental illness called schizophrenia, a mental illness that is called bipolar disorder, or are you believing that those mental illnesses don't even really exist? Yeah, that's a very complicated question. Right. Um, I'm going to need a bit of a detailed answer for you on that one. First, I don't use the term mental illness for any of these things because an illness implies that there's something biologically wrong with you, something genetically wrong with you. Right. And from my 13, 13 years of research online, I haven't found anybody who's received a test showing that genetically that they've got anything. Okay. Your, your, your tests come back genetically normal. And the research that I've read on Mad in America indicates that there, there is no or very little, if any, genetic factor in these things, you know. So, and even if there were, my attitude is, well, but even if, if it's a little bit genetic, can't we look at the deeper issues here? Can't we look at the trauma in a person's life? Okay. Now, that trauma, for me, is happening on a bioenergetic level. Some people on on your show may have heard of like a chakra system, a subtle body system, or a kundalini system. Are any of those terms familiar to you? Yep. Yeah, yeah. So, you know, in the doctor that I follow who came up with this term, spiritual emergency, he talks about the spiritual dimension of our being, and that trauma is actually rooted in energy blockages, Okay, so imagine you've got this chakra system or something like a chakra system and there's blockages there. And often they are at the main chakra centers, uh, heart chakra, belly button, throat chakra. This is it's very common for people to feel blockages in those places in their body once you, once you start to uh, do work with them, you know. And so my idea is that these disorders are uh, cases of blocked energy and that in order to heal the disorder, we need to work towards opening those blockages. Right. right. So it's not like I don't see a disorder because if people are paranoid and hallucinating, if they're in a manic episode, it can be very dangerous. They can't function and they very may very well need to go on medication and heavy medication in a lot of situations because we don't have a culture that supports a spiritual orientation. We just don't. I mean, other than going into your church on Sundays, it's 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 very limited. And even among like the New Age peoples and the New Age cultures, who are a little bit better, they they don't have the 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 knowledge to understand the psychological dimensions of this whole thing. Right. You know, they they, they tend to and they tend to look at it too positively. You know, they might they might see your mental disorder and go, oh, it's a spiritual thing, and 
we'll just do a sweat lodge for you and we'll do some shamanic healing and and you're going to be better you know and usually it's it's a lot more involved than that but it but it does involve quite a detailed spiritual understanding of what's going on you know and by that i mean an understanding of energy blockages and a chakra system and a, a broader understanding of the psyche that Stan Groff brings, you okay. know, these kind of things. Yeah. Yeah. So, uh, I'm, I'm in my head, I'm trying to figure this out. Like, <laughs> are, are you trying, know, are you trying? Right so if somebody comes to you and they may have been diagnosed with bipolar disorder and you're, you're going to work with them. Do you somehow try to, uh, bring about a spiritual, awakening a spiritual a mystic event like you went through do you try to help them have one is that a not part exactly. of the healing not exactly my process that i work with people with bipolar disorder is called bipolar breath work okay it's rooted in this approach from stan groff which is trademarked called holotropic breath work and i'm a certified holotropic breath work facilitator okay what holotropic breath work does is first you create a very safe space for a person, like a retreat environment, and you've got trained people with them. You know, and in my case, we'll have like me, myself, who's certified by Groff Transpersonal Training, and um, another woman, for example. So we have a male and a female energy. And then we'll have the person lay down and we'll play music that starts out, you know, very powerful and a lot of drumming, and we'll encourage the person to breathe deeply. You know, and this all comes from holotropic breath work. We encourage the person to breathe deeply. And just doing that, just having the person starting to breathe deeply and having them in a protective setting with people who know what they're doing, then a kind of um, non-ordinary state or holotropic state will start to take place in the person where certain energies will start to come up and the, and the energetic process starts to become healing. And moving in a healing direction. Okay? Now, when the client is ready, sometimes those energies can bring up traumas. And when those traumas come up, then we're getting into some really deep healing. And are they okay? talking? Well, they're doing the breathing, so they aren't actually talking at all. Most of the time they're not, and they're encouraged to kind of close their eyes and go into a go into a deeper process. And I think the closest thing that maybe a mainstream audience might understand is it's a little bit like an LSD trip, you yeah. might say, you know, where where people have come up with a lot of spiritual experiences and and and, and breakthrough experiences taking LSD. But also, you can have people who end up hospitalized because they've taken LSD, uh, heavier doses, you know, not yeah. a great setting. And, um, they're really not ready for that experience, you know? Um, and then they get medicated for life. Right. So in this way, just using the breath, we're able to get to the healing aspects that come forward in something like a psychedelic experience. And, and there's a lot of psychedelic, um, research going on right now. It's sort of made a re renaissance yeah. in the States. Absolutely. And uh, I did, uh, I only heard about holotropic uh, breathing recently from another guest mm -hmm. who did describe it that way as people uh, doing the holotropic breath experiencing, as you mentioned, kind of a, an LSD type of trip or a psilocybin type of trip. And it made me think of the fact that 
I know some of the research going on around the psychotropic right now involve guided trips, right? Blindfolds on right. people, so they work inward. They have what they call a guide with them, who I don't know if they're a therapist or, or what they are. Maybe they're therapists. Mm-hmm. Um, mm-hmm. And it mm-hmm. sounds very similar. And I know, actually, I mentioned it to my brother to see if he had heard the term just because he's a family doctor. And, and he had mentioned that Michael Pollan spoke uh, about it or wrote about it um, not too long ago. Yeah, Michael Pollan's book has been kind of a big breakthrough and introduced people to holotropic breathwork. Although apparently he didn't really have a holotropic ex- breathwork experience in the book. I mean, that is a very set format. It's a three-hour session with certified Groff facilitators from Groff Transpersonal Training, and that training is pretty intensive, you know, because right. what happens on the breathwork mat is that if you just try this at home and you just say, oh, you know, this sounds fun, I can just accelerate my breathing and do it on the mat at home and see what happens, either nothing is going to happen or you're going to have an experience that scares the shit out of you. Well, I was okay? wondering about that. Like, it <laughs> seems like it is just brought on from the way the, the person is breathing and that was actually a thought that occurred to me. Do people then go home and try it on their own? And if they do without a guide, is it a dangerous yeah. situation or could it also be a, a healing process? But it sounds like you're saying don't risk it. It could certainly be dangerous. It does not. In general, it doesn't go well. Right. It doesn't go well. But so, here's the thing is the real healing agent, and this is the harder part to believe, the real healing agent is this divine intelligence I have clients who we just lay them down and within five minutes they're in a non-ordinary state. They've barely breathed. But when the setting is right, when you've got the yoga mats in the right place, when you've got the two trained facilitators there, when the person has the space and the privacy and they feel safe and secure and and they've got a disorder, whoa, they can just go off, you know, and, and the healing starts, you know. So the healing agent in, in a sense, is really God itself, you know. So I had a client here last year, um, you know, the mother, her son, they were quite a well-off family. Um, the son was in the United States. The mother flew in from Japan. And she was like, so you can say without a shadow of a doubt that God exists. And I'm like, I work with this every day. I work with this divine intelligence that's every day of our retreats. I'm working with this divine intelligence. And, it, and it's been a great, I would say, a great honor to have this sort of intimacy with this, with this dimension, you know. Almost like a shaman. Yeah, yeah. Um, and those, those Inca guys were right. They were like, you know, you're a shaman for another culture. And, you know, we don't have time to get into it, but the work has become even more shamanic where – I'm I'm actually able to take on some of the materials of the clients and that came quite by accident. So, for example, if they were working through fear, um, they might go into a state that was very quiet and peaceful. Uh, but then that night I would have nightmares full of fear because I was processing their materials. Right. And right. so there's there's quite a few situations now where I'll breathe right after my client. So my client will do a breathwork session and then I'll do it right after and most of the time, I'm doing most of the dirty work, okay. all the sort of heavy, difficult, shameful, evil material comes to me. And and my clients who are less experienced and more sensitive are going through more peaceful processes that make them feel more alive, to be quite honest, just usually alive. So do you think that uh, everybody who 
is in the field or in the work of holotropic breathing believes that there's a divine intervention piece? Or do some believe it's just this physiological, biological piece of what's going on with the oxygenation in your blood and so forth? Well, uh, if you're a certified holotropic breathwork facilitator, that means you've gone through Groff transpersonal training. Um, they're having a bit of a political issue there right now, but basically you've come through Groff transpersonal training. And um, through the, the, the Groff work, he says in his text that the healing agent is the inner healer. Okay, So what the oxygen is doing is it's only opening you up to this divine intelligence, you know? And right. and I think that it's opening you up by breaking down your ego functioning. It's it's really the ego that is keeping us in control and sort of locked into our ways of doing things. And when you take LSD or you smoke a lot of marijuana, that ego gets broken down by chemical means, right? But in, a, in the right setting, it, with this accelerated breathing, you can gently break your ego down as well, you know? Okay. And I think in a much safer way, right? Right, right. Uh, but... But that is not the healing agent. The healing agent is this divine intelligence that looks down and sees Sean or Al on the yoga mat and sees, you know, uh, John and Mary with him and then says, you know what, I think we can take out some of that childhood trauma now because this guy's ready to go, you know. Wow. And then, and then it happens. You know? And then I guess my other question too is do you think anybody could go and learn about how to – uh, how to lead someone through the holotropic breathing, or do you believe that you really are a special person who is like a shaman and one must be similar to a shaman in order to be able to do the work of holotropic breathing with someone? You know, Al, I'm very impressed with your questions. <laughs> well, thank you. <laughs> Just, thank you. <laughs> um, I think that Maybe a little bit like just being anything else in this world, like being a basketball player. Anybody could play basketball, but some people play it a lot better than others, right? Right, right. <laughs> um, some people, if you give them uh, tons of dancing lessons, they'll, they'll be better, but they'll never really be a, a great dancer. You know, some, yep. some things are born. I think the same thing goes with uh, being a holotropic breathwork facilitator. Some people have a natural knack for it, you mm -hmm. know, and but there's I think there's a de personal development part that is very important. Right. You need to work on yourself. And I think that it's something that a lot of people could learn. It's not like an exclusive thing. Gotcha. Gotcha. That makes a lot of sense. I like that analogy. And it's almost like a predisposition, right? Like people in the NBA probably have a little bit of innateness to their their skill. Yeah. I mean, they work really damn hard, but a lot of people may work just as hard and never make it anywhere near the MBA. And, sure. and I think the same with language learners. Some people have uh, whatever it is that makes them pick up languages much quicker than others who have to study, you know, years and years to be able to speak a second language. Well, having lived in Brazil for 18 years, I can tell you that my Portuguese sucks. Okay. <laughs> That's funny. And, hey, uh, tell man, you have no idea. That's funny. Tell us, tell us about your book. Okay. Well, my book is called "Am I Bipolar or Waking Up?" All right, and the book really goes through the details of a lot of what we've talked about on the call. Okay, okay? I wrote about this in 2011, and it also gets into 
sort of the adventures I took in Brazil that really made me feel like I found me. You know, I called part two. Part one of the book is like what got me hospitalized. Part two I called The Struggle for Integration, where I, I started to really come become my own person. And then part three is when I started working with my own nieces, you know. And that's what really got me onto this work. That right? is really cool. Yeah. Um, and it's, you know, the story is much bigger than that. There's actually a history of working with people in, quote, psychosis that goes back to the 1960s with Artie Lang, you know. And we've, we've known for quite a long time that you can work people through a first-break psychosis um, with just a completely different approach. Instead of pathologizing it, looking at it as a natural reorganization of the psyche, you know, and, and that can be quite um, successful the first time. But if people have had repeated breaks, then it gets more difficult. And my work now, I, I tend to be using bipolar breath work with people that are on repeated breaks or have had repeated breaks. You know, that's sort of where that's gone. That's incredible. You know? And yeah. uh, in addition to the book, I know you have a website, right? BipolarAwakenings.com. Right. I, I changed the name. I, I decided, you know what? I think that I think I I've got my answer and I think that in my opinion, I think that all bipolar disorder is a potential awakening. And in inversely all awakening is potentially bipolar disorder. I mean it can really cut either way. And sometimes the solution is medication and deep interpersonal work. And I think that's where it's gonna be for a lot of people. Uh, when people come and do my retreats, I insist that they remain on their medication and that they stay on it for a few months afterwards and only come off uh, reducing it if they're under their uh, psychiatrist supervision. You right, know? right. So that's what's going on. And, and the work is even, I mean, it's even broadening. Um, we don't have time to get into it, but I've even started doing some distance healing in the last year that has um, had some very surprising results and very encouraging, which has made the whole thing a lot cheaper. Okay. You know? so, so the I'm did I get the website too. right? I know you said it changed. Uh, BipolarAwakenings.com. Yeah, okay. you got it right. Great. Yeah. Great. And then, uh, yeah, so you you do lead, you had on the website I saw retreats. And that is that the holotropic work of a guided breath work or right. are the retreats? That is. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. Um, you know, I call it bipolar breath work because I don't want people to think that they're going to come down here and do holotropic breath work. Okay. It's a little bit different. Gotcha. Because you know, there are there are holotropic breathwork practitioners in the United States, and it's usually a group setting, and they usually don't accept people with mental disorders. Okay. Because there's too much of a risk in a group setting right. to do that kind of work. So, um, so I'm doing bipolar breathwork, and I do it privately, like one client at a time. Okay. You know? Right. Yeah. Because um, uh, people need a lot of attention. Yep. And uh, it looked like a pretty extensive website. Other stuff people can find on there. It's mostly about my work, but there's a lot of videos that I've done on bipolar disorder, the evolution of consciousness, which takes into account Ken Wilber's work, which his work can be very complex. Um, so my videos sort of make it simple. Um, and a lot of the video work I've done was really between 2007 and 2012. You know? Okay. Right. Although I'm still making some videos more recently, but it, yeah, mostly videos. I'm open for people who want to do consultations. Right. I'm doing some distance healing and a little bit of online coaching for uh, a new therapy that I'm I'm sort of developing as well to help people work through their difficult energies. So if somebody is listening and is 
living with bipolar disorder, that type of diagnosis, can they reach out to you from another country and still connect with you? Sure. Yeah. You just contact me through my website. You know, it's all in English. Awesome. All right. Great. Even though I'm in Brazil, most of my clientele, well, for my English website is the rest of the world, you know, and then we have a Portuguese website for people in Brazil. Okay. Fantastic. Yeah. So Sean, before we wrap up, I would love to hear if you have any piece of advice or wisdom or a suggestion for somebody who is right now listening and struggling with living with maybe a, a bipolar disorder or struggling through a depressive episode? Okay, well, first I think is there's a lot of ways to look at these things. And I think that, you know, people should go with what feels true to them, you know, where you're at. If you feel like you're a person that just needs to stay on your medication, then that's probably the best way for you to go, you know. But if you're seeing um, a spiritual dimension to what you're working through, or even, uh, like I said, an existential dimension, which can mean like what's the meaning of life, you know, these kind of deeper questions, then stay curious. And a lot of people come to me and they're like, am I having a spiritual problem or a mental illness? Like it's either or, because if it's a mental illness, I need the meds. If it's a spiritual problem, then I need to find a shaman or I, I need to do something like that. My suggestion would be to treat it as both, to stay on your medications and keep digging, you know, look up my material, watch my videos, see if those resonate with you. But there's other sources out there. Um, the work of Stan Groff, John Weir Perry, Lauren Mosher, madinamerica.com you know these are these are resources for people looking at alternatives because it's it's not a one size fits all kind of thing but you don't have to make a hard decision between your medication and listening to your psychiatrist and doing deeper healing work right that, right yeah i think that's the most important advice i could give to anyone who's curious yeah no that's awesome so, uh, Sean, I want to thank you. I want to thank you uh, for your time on the show, on the Depression Files. And I want to thank you just for the good work you're doing and in supporting others and working, uh, you know, putting out good energy as well as working with such energy. <laughs> and I work with a lot of demonic energy, to tell you the truth. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Well, so, it was yeah, fantastic. Thanks. Thank you Pleasure. very much. And uh, make sure you stay healthy. Okay. Thanks, Al. Thank you for listening to The Depression Files. If you are currently suffering from depression and are experiencing thoughts of suicide, please reach out for help. In the United States, you can text 741-741 to connect with a trained crisis counselor, or you can go to suicide.org for a list of international suicide hotlines. If you enjoyed the show, please hit the like button. In addition, please leave a rating and a review on iTunes. Thank you again for listening to The Depression Files.